So all of this is kind of come together to make this very complex mix, which is healthcare consumerism. And that has led to people seeking healthcare where they want it, when they want it, how they want it. Hello and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. On June 13th, Amelix Pharmaceuticals announced that the Health Products and Food Branch of Health Canada officially approved Albrioza, known as AMX35 in the United States. The Food and Drug Administration is currently considering whether to approve AMX35 and recently extended its time frame for reviewing the company's new drug application by three months in order to review additional data. As listeners may recall, an FDA advisory committee voted narrowly earlier this year against recommending AMX35 for approval in the United States, but a lot has changed since that vote. In May, several dozen leading ALS clinicians submitted a letter to the FDA urging the agency to approve the drug. As clinicians, they wrote, we ask FDA to grant approval so we can work with our patients to determine if AMX35 is right for them. They also wrote, quote, the FDA has a choice to make. FDA could choose to not approve AMX35 now and wait for the confirmatory phase three trial, which is already underway. This would mean that if the second trial confirms the positive findings, thousands of people with ALS would have been deprived of this life-changing therapy and pass away due to this fatal disease. If the FDA does the right thing and approves now and the phase three trial phase to replicate, people with ALS may have been treated with an ineffective but a safe drug which would not have caused any substantive harm. End of quote. And we will, of course, share a link to that letter in the show notes so you can read it in its entirety. Now, around the same time, clinical investigators published additional data analysis showing that AMX35 was effective at reducing a variety of harms associated with ALS, including risk of death, tracheostomy, or permanent assisted ventilation. In addition, more than 9,000 emails have been sent to the FDA from people living with ALS and their loved ones calling on the agency to approve the therapy. Now, approval in Canada creates additional urgency on the FDA to act. There have already been reports of people purchasing ingredients on the internet, which is exacerbating supply chain issues and driving up costs. And while it will take some time for the treatment to be made available and accessible in Canada, the FDA needs to be prepared for people attempting to obtain the treatment through a process commonly called medical or pharmaceutical tourism. I recently sat down with Dr. David Viquist, the founder and director of the Center for Medical Tourism Research at the University of Incarnate Wood in Texas, to understand the history and some of the driving motivations behind medical tourism. Well, Dr. Viquist, thank you so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Thank you very much. So before we get into the real nuts and bolts of this, uh, why don't you take an opportunity and just kind of introduce yourself to listeners and tell us just a little bit about the Center for Medical Tourism Research. Thank you. I appreciate that. So um, myself, I, I've been a faculty member for 20 years now with the HEB School of Business and Administration. It's part of the University of the Incarnate Word. Um, we're in San Antonio, Texas. Been a, uh, the university's been here since the 1800s. We, um, the HEB School of Business is one of the biggest schools 
uh, within the university. And um, interestingly, we were started by uh, a trio of nuns that uh, traveled from France to Texas in the 1800s for a cholera epidemic. And we were one of the first missions that they started here. Um, they're also associated with a large healthcare system, which is also a sister institution to the university called Christus Healthcare. So we, since the 1800s, the university has had a presence in healthcare. So the, a little bit about my background, how I got here. When I came here 20 years ago to the university, had previously been a vice president of human resources for the Methodist healthcare system, which was part of HCA, uh, one of the largest publicly traded hospital systems in the world. And before that was a consultant with Ernst & Young. Uh, came to the university and uh, needed to develop a research agenda and was familiar with people traveling, particularly internationally, but through um, both regional, city, state, you name it, borders for healthcare, particularly here in San Antonio, Texas, where we saw a lot of Mexican nationals that would come from Mexico into the U.S. for healthcare. And so I uh, started researching this uh, interesting aspect of health consumerism. And uh, it's just been an incredible journey. I've been studying it for a little over a decade now and um, seen uh, some incredible things and been able to travel the world and see how people are increasingly finding the solutions to their healthcare issues wherever they may be, uh, not necessarily in, in your city or state. What is the scope of, of medical tourism, whether globally or if we're looking at Americans who are looking for solutions to their healthcare needs elsewhere? Yeah, it's surprisingly much larger than people think. There's two aspects of, of medical tourism when it comes to Americans. One is the uh, domestic travel where people travel within the United States, but uh, again, outside of their city, their county, or potentially even their state. Uh, and that's a, a fairly large uh, percentage of the population. It, it's estimated that sometimes up to, say, 10 to 20 percent of the U.S. population will travel regionally for health care. Then there's the travel outside of the United States into other countries. Now, this is a trend that has grown over the years. It's still not as significant as the travel that goes on, say, between European states. There's an estimate out there from some research a few years back that in Europe, uh, about uh, 4% of all Europeans travel outside of their country to another country for care. Uh, we have estimates from places like Canada, where the estimates are potentially upwards of 2%. A recent very large sample size uh, research, uh, survey research was done by the CDC and released last year. The numbers were up to, as I recall, 2018, showed that it was about a little over 1% of Americans travel internationally for healthcare. In other words, travel outside of the United States. The reason is that uh, in general, Americans tend to be fairly provincial. They tend to believe that most of the healthcare things that they need can be found within the country. And um, for many cases, that may be true. And then the other is a perception that uh, quality is not to the level it is in the United States and other locations, which there's actually not 
a lot of clinical evidence to support that. So there is um, there is some places where Americans would probably find exceptional care to be equal to what they get in the United States. You talk about some of that regional, domestic, but regional travel for healthcare, certainly something very familiar to our listeners who often are traveling some distance for their multidisciplinary care centers. Thinking about that less than 1% that is seeking healthcare solutions internationally, do you have a sense of what's driving that? Yeah, correct. Uh, so oftentimes, if you look on the literature, you'll see the discussion about healthcare. And this actually uh, arose during the public policy debates about healthcare that occurred uh, back in the 2000s under the Obama administration about the idea of cost and quality. Um, a book written by uh, Dr. Michael Porter from Harvard Business School, who's considered uh, uh, the father of modern strategy when it comes to uh, business, wrote a book in healthcare that was not as well received uh, within the healthcare community. It was called Redefining Healthcare. And he suggested we need to stop having these artificial debates about cost and quality. Typically, what people are seeking is value. Most healthcare consumers are seeking value, meaning that they're looking for a quality level which is adequate or appropriate for them at a cost they can afford. So the common um, analogy I would give, for example, is about if you were searching for a car, you could go on Facebook and uh, look on the uh, Facebook market and find a car that was for sale that was very cheap, but it didn't have an engine, it didn't have a steering wheel, it didn't have tires. And so therefore it wouldn't be appropriate for getting you back and forth to work. So therefore, even though the cost is low, the quality is not where you would need it to be. So we have to have these discussions in healthcare about value, not cost and quality as separate entities. They're not really a separate construct. Value is the construct. So people are seeking high quality care at a price they can afford. And so that's kind of the value equation that people are looking for. The international markets, the, the ability to travel uh, outside your region or even outside the country to be able to access that has basically created these value-seeking behaviors, what we call patient consumerism. Um, and that's been increasing significantly, particularly over the last few decades. And quite frankly, it's been driven by the internet. Some fascinating statistics regarding the internet and healthcare, something I, I expect we'll get into a little bit later as well, is that we find that when it comes to medical tourists, people traveling either domestically or internationally, about 70% of them have used the internet as a guide for where to go to. And then uh, when we look at research from Pew, for example, we see that really, quite frankly, looking for healthcare is the third most common use of the internet. Email being number one, social media being number two. And then essentially, if you look at all the other healthcare uses, the, the internet being third, third most common. In fact, it makes up, uh, I think it's like seven to 9% of total Google searches. Oh, wow. So it's, it's pretty significant. So all of this is kind of come together to make this very complex mix, which is healthcare consumerism. And that has led to people seeking healthcare where they want it, when they want it, how they want it. And I think it's a positive trend overall uh, compared to how traditional healthcare was procured by people, which is I went to my local physician, I went to my local hospital, and there wasn't other options. 
You mentioned value, you mentioned affordable, that kind of that proposition. What are the implications for people who are covered by say private insurance? Um, and that's part of my value proposition is what will my insurance cover this? How does that interact with seeking solutions internationally? Yeah, correct. So uh, obviously most private insurance is going to limit the type of care providers, the providers that you can utilize. Um, in fact, there has been a trend that you're probably familiar with and your listeners are probably familiar with in terms of narrow networks and things of that nature, sure. where private insurance has very much tried to maximize their value equation in terms of being able to funnel people to providers that they would like them to go to because they obviously provide the best return on investment for these organizations, which in most cases tend to be for-profit. Um, there are some uh, nonprofit organizations as well. Most patient consumerism occurs outside of these uh, private insurance carriers or in the case of people that, for example, have Medicare or Medicaid or even TRICARE. Most of this patient consumerism is outside of that. So in other words, it's outside of the traditional way in which uh, healthcare has been consumed, particularly in the United States for a long time. Uh, and we see this in places like uh, England and we see this in places like Canada. For example, Canadians are very much more likely to travel into the United States get, to get access to care because they have long queue times and can sometimes wait uh, six months for imaging and you know a year or two for uh, surgery. And so they'll travel into the United States to be able to get access to care. So and it, these private insurance or government uh, regulatory schemes are more traditional. Patient consumerism is basically saying, is there other options? What are the implications with that, considering some of the out-of-pocket expenses, both for the provision of care and then, of course, travel expenses to get to that destination? I can't imagine that this is an even playing field on a kind of socioeconomic and, and equity standpoint. Yeah. So interestingly, the, uh, the studies of medical tourism from around the world find that the travel for medical tourism tends to be a bimodal distribution, meaning that there tends to be two significant groups that partake or um, engage with uh, this international travel, and particularly talking about international travel, but it's probably true for domestic travel as well. And that's quite frankly, the lower socioeconomic uh, status individuals and also the, the more affluent individuals. So uh, for example, if you look at countries like Malaysia, which has a very poor and very populous country nearby called Indonesia, the majority of the medical tourists that come to them are actually from places like Indonesia, where they literally travel across the border because the access to care that they have in Indonesia is very poor. And so they could go to a public clinic in Indonesia, but they, they know that the quality is not what it should be. And they can literally go several miles across the border and into Malaysia and get access to much better care. So poor people do travel for healthcare and they basically 
go to places where they get a higher quality for the, the price that they're paying. And then we obviously have the, the more fluent individuals that are looking for the best value care that they can find wherever that is. For example, um, several years back, uh, both Peyton Manning, Kobe Bryant, and uh, Alex Rodriguez, who was with the Yankees at the time, traveled into Germany to extend their playing careers. And these were all extremely wealthy athletes that had multi-million dollar contracts. And to extend their playing careers a few more years, they went into Germany for a provider that was known to be the best in the world at a particular procedure, rather than going staying here in the United States where they had access to you know, some of the best care on the planet. So uh, there does tend to be a bimodal distribution. And obviously because of things like the, um, the severe differences in cost of living in places like India or Mexico, Turkey, we find that oftentimes uh, traveling for care in these locations uh, is actually um, not that expensive. And, and even when combined with travel cost, it actually proves to be fairly reasonable compared to say out-of-pocket expenses um, that an American might pay, even including deductible and co-pays. One of the reasons that you and I are talking today, uh, Dr. Vequist, is the differential timelines and regulatory structures in place for emerging and new drugs. It's something that we've talked about quite frequently over the last year, a couple drugs that are in the pipeline. Much of medical tourism is, if you will, uh, considered a gray or sometimes even black market. And there are many cases, and I've heard of cases where people have contracted with physicians in foreign countries to be able to get access to medications and have them shipped back into the United States. And um, obviously, they were doing this for very valid reasons. And, you know, I, I can't, how can you fault somebody for uh, trying to uh, take care of a loved one by getting access to these medications? So a more, I guess you would say, approved way of doing this is people will sometimes travel internationally to get access to medications. When it comes to pharmaceutical tourism, it's actually a, a fairly uh, robust form of medical tourism. For those of us, uh, for example, in the Southwest, uh, I currently reside in Texas and grew up uh, part of my early childhood in uh, Arizona. And uh, those of us in the Southwest are very familiar with uh, going into Mexico and being able to go to a pharmacia and be able to get access to medications, uh, not only for much more low, lower prices, but also more immediate access. Things have changed a little bit over the years, and there still is the ability, for example, Americans to go into Mexico to get access to medications. There is actually a, a Department of Homeland Security protocol that allows um, that a couple of businesses have taken advantage of recently and developed solutions for employers, which include being able to go over across into Mexico uh, with a script from a physician in the United States, getting a script from a Mexican physician being able to come back across the border with a 90-day supply of a medication and then stay the night in a place like San Diego, go back across, say, to Tijuana and be able to get another 90-day supply. So you can get a six-month supply and be able to uh, take that home. 
many people ask and say, why are there pharmaceutical pricing differences in the United States uh, compared to Mexico? That's a very complex answer, but I do have some answers for it. Some papers were leaked uh, by the diplomatic corps in Europe. I, I forgot which country exactly. I want to say it was Belgium that showed, for example, in the last uh, pan- in this pandemic with regards to COVID, that uh, the U.S. was paying a higher per patient cost for the COVID medication. And it's not a um, really a secret, but basically the United States and US citizens pay a premium for pharmaceuticals, quite frankly, to pay for the cost of the development of the drugs so that people uh, around the world can access it at a lower cost. Oftentimes, these pharmaceutical companies are um, either through goodwill or through pressure from various organizations are giving these medications at very low cost in developing countries around the world, countries in Africa, for example, or Southeast Asia. And so it's very difficult for them to be able to recover the sunk cost put into the research. And so Americans typically pay a little higher price to basically pay for these development costs that they can't recoup in certain other countries. And then there's also the case of litigation, obviously in India, a very large country, larger than the United States. Uh, we have many more lawyers uh, than they do in India. In fact, I'd, last I'd heard, it was like three times as many lawyers as they do in India. And India has three times the population that we do. So uh, the, litigation in India never happens. uh, So it's very difficult for somebody to sue a pharmaceutical firm in India, whereas in the United States, it's extraordinarily easy. So you have to build in the litigation cost into the overall break-even cost uh, here in the United States. So yeah, the the pharmaceutical tourism is just absolutely fascinating. And I find it... um, I'm a big fan of the idea of people being able to get access to what they need, where they need, how they need it. And I think that the change in regulatory schemes, say the FDA versus the European versus other, is just a a fascinating um, moment for arbitrage. Um, uh, One of my colleagues, Glenn Cohen from Harvard, calls us legal arbitrage, where people go uh, in various different locations to get access to things that are not legal or not quite as um, regulated uh, somewhere else. And so that obviously affects these the clinical timelines that uh, the folks that are either our family of LDS uh, sufferers or the LDS sufferers themselves are very aware of. And um, this is something that we're seeing is an emerging aspect of medical tourism where people are finding these more, um, I guess, less regulated schemes or codes in other countries and that they can get access to drugs, medical technologies, and even procedures that are not available in the United States yet. And this is a, a very important aspect of this international trade that makes up medical tourism. Truly fascinating issue, and I'm sure we could spend another half hour talking about it. But out of respect for your time, Dr. Viquist, any other thoughts you want to share with listeners before I let you go? Yeah, so uh, I'm 
want to caution everybody about uh, something I mentioned earlier, which is getting access to information about various therapies on the internet. And yeah. I know that uh, people, um, that both family members and people with ALS are, are obviously out there looking at various different sites for information. And unfortunately, and particularly when it comes to international healthcare, uh, we see this quite a bit. Unfortunately, the, the research showing that internet information, unfortunately, tends to be um, a little um, give and take. Uh, so yeah. the studies that I've seen have shown that it's about a 30, 30, 30, 30 rule, 33, 33, 33. About 33% of the information that you find on the internet may just be inaccurate based on current clinical standards. And then 33% of the information is dated because it was posted, say, before you know the scientific research had caught up to um, new standards. And so new sure. standards are out there. And then about 33% is accurate and up to date. So it's kind of buyer beware when it comes to most of these uh, trends and the ability to travel either domestically or internationally for healthcare. But I would suggest that this has become, in many ways, the future of healthcare. I don't think that we're ever going to see a period of time in the future where the United States always has the most current medications, procedures, drugs. There was a time in the past, historically, where LASIK surgery, for example, was not allowable in the United States, but it was available in Mexico. And so what we saw is Mexican physicians developing an expertise around this and being better at it than American physicians. There is right now, perhaps, this is becoming the case if it's, uh, if you will, compared to say, some studies that are going on in uh, Europe, uh, Israel, Korea, uh, Turkey, you know, potentially in Mexico. There, there are things going on in India right now that are perhaps several years ahead of the FDA. And um, quite frankly, the only way that you're going to be able to access them sooner is to travel to some of these countries. I don't see that uh, the U.S. regulatory system is ever going to be able to keep up with the speed of some of these international schemes. And it's it's just the, the new way of life. And we have to get used to the fact that we healthcare is not just local. It's now global. Dr. VQuest, uh, thanks again so much for your time this week. You bet. Thank you. I appreciate you very much, Jeremy, and for this uh, program. I want to thank my guest this week, Dr. David Vequist. There is still time to urge the FDA to make AMX35 available for people with ALS living in the United States. Go to als.org FDA or follow the link in the show notes. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. And while you're at it, please find time to rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. Bye.